Stacy uh, was in the kitchen when I got home, and as I walked in from the garage, like I have so often before, the house smelled different. And that's not to say that the house doesn't usually smell different, which isn't uncommon when you have five kids under the age of 14. The house usually smells different, and the different looks different day to day. But this was a unique different, a good different. I walked in, and there was a, a smell that was permeating the room that literally grabbed me and pulled me in. And as I walked toward the sink, Stacy was dividing uh, a pot of stew into several containers. It seems that there was someone from our community, that, uh, from our church, that had brought dinner for us. And it was steak stew. And by steak, I mean, I think each chunk was eight ounces. It was amazing. Stewed tomatoes, eight ounces of steak per chunk, carrots. It was, it was a, uh, Stacy handed me a spoon and she said, here, see what you think. And I took in the experience. I took in the stew and it changed my life in that moment. And I began to talk to her about this steak stew and the effects that it was having on me and in my mind and in my body. And, and so uh, as we looked at the amount of stew, and there was a lot of stew, I began to, to think through how I was gonna manage this. And that didn't matter because within 24 hours, the stew was gone. The stew as I had known it was demolished. We had eaten it all up. I began talking to Stacy about cooking and about recipes and we looked at the stew and she said, I wonder if I can get the recipe from this individual who brought it over. If I just had the ingredients and figured out how they made it. And as we began to process even more, she said, you know, even more than the recipe and the ingredients, I wonder, what do you think if I were to ask or invite myself to their house and ask this person to show me how they made it? Because there are things in a recipe, there are things in, a, in ingredients that just cannot take place or replace the amount of, of experience and effort that goes into cooking something like this. And so she said, I wonder if I could begin to identify some people from our church and our community that are phenomenal cooks that would want to teach me. I could build relationships with them and we could learn to, I could learn to cook as we grow together. And I thought that's an incredible idea. I think it's the best idea you may have ever heard because not only will you learn how to cook, but I am the beneficiary of your amazing idea. Yes, Stacy, you should do that. And then I began to throw out some names. For instance, I said, if you want to learn how to bake, I need you to call Joyce Hudson. Please, I've got it on speed dial. It's right here. And we began to talk about others. And she, she had this idea for a new ministry. She said, what would it look like if I invited several of my girlfriends and we, we asked some of the older ladies in the church, some of the more experienced women in the church, by older, that's what I meant, some of the more experienced women in the church to show us how to cook. And then we could week to week or even a couple of times a month just go as a group of women and take over the ingredients and, and learn together. I said, that's an awesome idea. Now you're speaking the love language of most men in our church. And so I think that's a wonderful idea. We should start that ministry ministry. It had me thinking this whole week as we are in this series, The Power of One. And today we're going to be talking about the power of one prayer. You see, one seems so insignificant to so many that when you look at it in the grand scheme of things in a culture and a society where bigger is better, one seems insignificant. But I want to argue that where Jesus is concerned, the number one has the power to change everything. It has the power to change all eternity. And today, as we look at the power of one prayer, we're going to look at how prayer is less about religion and less about ingredients and less about a recipe and how one prayer has the power to change everything in our lives. 
Would you grab your Bibles and turn to the book of Matthew chapter 6? And if you don't have a Bible with you this morning, let me invite you to raise your hand. One of our ushers would love to bring a Bible to you. And these Bibles are our gift to you. They are yours to have and to keep. It's a way for you to follow along and, and read along with us. It's also a great way for you to take notes and to write down some observations and insights, some questions you have, and to use it throughout the week, each week to follow along and to continue your own private studies as we go together. Today, as we get ready to dive into Matthew chapter 6, let me pray for us. Father, I thank you so much for this morning. I thank you for an opportunity to worship together. I thank you for the power of your word and what you already did this morning at our first service. And Father, I pray now as we jump into these next few moments together, that you would help us to set aside the distractions of our week, that we would be able to focus in on our time together and that your words would become active and alive in us, that they would literally capture our hearts jumping off the page into the inner recesses of our minds and that you would take us from where we're at and to where you want us to go. Lord, I pray now that as we pray together, as we learn to pray together, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be holy and pleasing to you, Father. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Matthew chapter 6, if you're not sure where that is, you can begin by looking at the table of contents at the front of your Bible, or you can turn about halfway through your Bible and just start turning to your right, and you'll run into the, the Gospels, and the first one is Matthew. I want to give us just a couple of minutes of context as we jump in, because I think it's pretty significant with regards to what we're going to read today. Matthew chapter 5 begins Jesus' public ministry. Jesus' first public ministry uh, to, to those at large. And Jesus begins part of his public ministry with a sermon. What we have affectionately learned to call the Sermon on the Mount. And I would tell you that there are those who would argue, philosophers, atheists, those of other religions, that would all agree that regardless of where they stand on Jesus and a relationship with Jesus or a Christendom, that this is maybe the greatest speech, in their opinions, that has had the biggest impact across the broadest spectrum of, of people. For us, we can recognize that Jesus' very first words publicly, when he speaks through the sermon, he says, repent for the kingdom of God is near. And that what he'll do through chapter five, six, and seven, or one collection, one sermon collected in three segments for us, in the Sermon on the Mount, is that he will unpack what this means to repent because the kingdom of God is near. As Jesus begins his public ministry, I want us to understand who he's talking to because it bears some significance for us this morning. If you read in the beginning of chapter four and, and carry on into five, you'll find out then that as Jesus begins to travel and speak, large crowds begin to follow him. From the Decapolis, which if you were here last week, we learned that the Decapolis or the Deca means the 10, and these are the 10 Gentile regions on the, on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. But in all, by name, there are 18 different communities represented when Jesus gives this Sermon on the Mount, including religious leaders such as the Pharisees and the Sadducees, as well as Gentiles and pagans, those who have false gods or have no religion and everything in between. So as Jesus is speaking, he's speaking to a large, broad audience with different experiences, different exposures, different knowledge, different education, different understandings. And he comes to the table with them all, and as he's going and speaking, he comes up on the side of this mountain, and there he sits down along the side of the mountain with his disciples and this large group of people, this large eclectic body from all different backgrounds and experiences 
And Jesus has an incredible message for them. We're going to pick up in Matthew chapter 5, or excuse me, Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 5. We're going to spend a few moments together reading through this, and as we do, we're going to stop and we're going to unpack some of this. So let's read together the word of the Lord, Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 5. It says, when you pray, when you pray, Jesus is actually going to make this statement twice. This morning as I was reading through this again, I got up about four o'clock this morning, this message stirring in my heart, these words rattling around in my brain. I came into the office and I began to, to write through this and think through this again. A new thought jumped off at the page of me that Jesus made this statement more than once and I actually wrote this down for us to consider today. It says, when you pray, and I wrote this down, prayer is not an accessory to our faith, but it's fundamental to our identity as Christians. Prayer is not an accessory to our faith. Jesus doesn't say, if you pray, or when you're out with a certain group doing a certain thing, and you begin to pray, he says, when you pray. It's not an accessory to our faith. In other words, Friday night when Stacy and I went out to dinner with a, a couple from our church and I was picking out a pair of slacks and a, a dress shirt and a, a tie that would bring everything, a necktie that would bring everything together from the sport coat to the socks and the shoes and all that as an accessory or Stacy was getting dressed and she had costume jewelry that kind of accented or tied everything together. That's not how we're to take on prayer. Prayer isn't just something that we do to accent our faith. I believe that prayer is the foundation for us as Christians about our relationship with God, which we'll learn here in just a moment. But this would have been a new thought for them. Prayer was uh, something you did. Prayer was uh, something you did a specific time of day, a specific number of times a day, and in a specific way. There was rituals that went with it. There was rules and regulations that went with prayer. It was also incredibly important that we understand that there was a specific way, not only in which you pray, but how you pray and who you pray through, not to. Keep, that, keep hold of that. Who you pray through, not to. And Jesus says, when you pray, and he's going to give two stark contrasts here. The first is like the hypocrites. He says, don't be like the hypocrites who love to pray publicly on street corners and in the synagogues where everyone can see them. I tell you the truth, that's all the reward that they will ever get. But when you pray, go away by yourself, shut the door behind you, and pray to the Father in private. Then your Father who sees everything will reward you. Jesus is talking about hypocrites. And when he talks about hypocrites, throughout the Gospels, he's most often, if not almost exclusively, referring to the Pharisees. The Pharisees are the religious elite. The Pharisees are the religious leaders. The Pharisees, and that word hypocrite that we need to understand is, this is a direct, in the original language, the tie is a direct tie to theater. That they would have a, a, a lack of people able to be a part of the theater. So what they would do from the stage then is they would have multiple masks. And they would set these masks out on a stage. And from one scene into the next, an actor or an actress could then run up, would grab a mask, put the mask on, play that part, take the mask off, move to the opposite side of the stage, pick up another mask, secure the new mask, and play that part. So as Jesus is talking and he uses language like the hypocrites, he's drawing a word picture and a direct parallel to people who are about performance, who put on a show. And he says, don't be like these religious leaders that are all about the show. They go and they pray on street corners. And what this would be is that as people were heading into the market 
or as they were going into the synagogues to worship, these Pharisees would then pray, and they would position themselves where everyone who was passing by would not only be able to see them, but would be able to hear them. And they wouldn't just pray little prayers, they would pray these elaborate prayers using big fancy language that would uh, flex their, their intellectual knowledge with the whole intent and purpose of impressing those around them. They weren't concerned with what God thought about them. They were consumed with what their public persona was. They weren't concerned about a relationship with God. They were consumed by what others thought about them. And so they would pray in a way and in a position physically and in a voice that others could admire them. This is also seen as an example when Jesus sitting with his disciples for worship There are 13 treasury boxes throughout the temple and this widow comes in with two small mites and she makes the deposit and Jesus says, hey guys, do you see that woman? I want to tell you something. She's given more than all these other hypocrites, these other Pharisees. And they look at one another and they say, what could Jesus mean by that? She only gave a couple of pennies. But Jesus says, look, 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 look. I want to tell you something, guys. These Pharisees, these hypocrites, they wrote these big checks in the presence of everyone making sure that they all knew how much they were giving. But I want to tell you that it didn't even impact the interest. The interest on the interest was less than what these guys just gave. You see, they gave out of their excess. It won't even make a dent. But this woman gave quietly in the recesses of her own heart, and she gave everything that she had. Those two pennies, that was all she had, but she gave it all. So what Jesus is talking about here is motivation. It's a matter of motivation, not location, which we're going to learn here more about in just a moment. He says, I don't want you to be like these Pharisees who go out on the, the, the public streets and they pray in the synagogue so that everybody can see them and be impressed with them. Verse 6 says, but when you pray, there it is again, it's not an accessory, but it is a, a, a byproduct of a relationship with God. Go away by yourself, shut the door behind you, and pray to your father in private. Then your father who sees everything will reward you. You know, church, at first glance, when you read through this, it's easy to get caught up in location. Location, location, location. Because it seems to me that Jesus is saying that when you pray, you should go by yourself in a little room. You should close the door in your little room where no one can see you in your room. And there you can pray to God the Father where no one can see you but God sees you. But I want to suggest to you that Jesus isn't talking about location, which I just said. Jesus is talking about motivation. He's talking about motivation. Because Jesus, it wouldn't make sense then, Jesus is going to teach us to pray publicly. Jesus is going to teach on prayer publicly. Jesus is going to use language that is plural, that is for us to pray publicly. So then if Jesus is talking about using the plural to introduce prayer and he's doing it in public and he teaches us to collectively pray together in public, Well, then what does he really mean? And it goes right back to the understanding that what Jesus is saying is that, look, in the quiet of your heart, in the recesses of your mind, where no one can see but God, what your motivation is, that's what matters most. Are you praying so that people can hear you? Are you praying in a God voice? And you know what I mean by a God voice. You know those people that you have had conversations with on the street, and then when it comes time to prayer, it's it's like a light switched on. It's the mask. They pray totally different than they would in normal conversation. And there's, I'm, not, I'm not here to cast stones or throw judgment. I'm guilty of that often. And there's a reason for that. And I want to talk about that here in just a moment as we continue to unpack. 
But Jesus is saying, look, 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 look. It's not about location. It's about motivation. Don't do this. Don't do this prayer thing where others can see you so they can be impressed with you, what you bring to the table, what you have to offer. And then he's going to go, and he's going to, on, 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 on a, a huge contrast, a huge juxtaposition, Jesus is going to talk about a totally different sect of people, a different group of people. Verse 7, when you pray, don't babble on, don't babble on and on, as people of other religions do. You see, they think that their prayers are answered merely by repeating their words again and again. Don't be like them, for your father knows exactly what you need even before you ask him. Jesus is now talking about the Gentiles. He's talking about those who are involved in pagan worship, who are involved in idolatry, those who will babble on and on and on. And through incantation and through uh, using a certain type of words in a certain type of way, they are attempting to spiritually manipulate God. They think that if they pray a certain way, a certain number of times, in a certain position, that somehow they're going to have some, 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 some skin in the game and that, that, that they're going to manipulate God. But what Jesus says is, look, God already knows what you need even before you ask. So that that's the case, then why are we even praying? Well, you're going to learn here in just a moment that I think we pray even though God knows what we ask before we ask because it's a relationship. He's using two stark contrasts, the religious elite and the social outcasts because of their pagan worship and their idolatry. He's saying, I don't want you to be like these religious elite, and I certainly don't want you to be like these Gentiles who go out there and they just babble on and on and on, thinking that somehow God's going to tap and say, okay, stop talking. You can have it your way. Just stop. In other words, he's saying, when you pray, pray on purpose. Pray on purpose. Don't just go on and on and on. Jesus is going to do something here that we have to understand culturally. You see, most of us who've grown up in church, I wasn't one of them, but when I did come to faith in Christ, I, I, there was a system of, of rules or religion that I began to pick up, even at a later age, at 16, 17 years old. Most of us have learned the Lord's Prayer at some point along the way. Whether you grew up in church or not, even in sports, when I played football, we would say the Lord's Prayer. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. We learned it in the King James in Old English. And regardless of where you're at, when you read it even in modern vernacular, your mind is drawn back to the original language. What, what I want to suggest to you is that we can be guilty all too often of sweeping right on through this prayer and not really recognizing what Jesus was doing. But when the original audience heard what Jesus was saying, it fundamentally changed everything about the way they viewed God. Let me say that again. This is important. We've got to get this. While we are, are quick to just dismiss this and sweep right over it because it's a part of our religion, it's a part of our faith, when the original audience of the Jews and the Gentiles and everything in between heard this language, this was the first time that they had ever been introduced to this language, and it fundamentally changes everything about they, the way that they had perceived God. Let's look at this together. He says, guys, when you pray, pray like this. 
Verse nine, this is not about a recipe. This is not about ingredients. This, you will learn, is about a relationship. Verse nine, it says, the second part of verse nine now, our Father, our Father in heaven, what is imperative that we understand is that throughout the Old Testament, where religion is concerned, and even within the kingdom of God, where, where, where relationship with God is concerned, rabbis and, and God-fearing Jews would never call on the name of God. In fact, even when they would refer to the, uh, Yahweh as God, they would whisper it, and they would only be consonants, they, uh, consonants, consonants, that's a big God. They would only use consonants, not vowels, because they were, they were in such awe and fear and had so much reverence of God. They had alternative names that speak or spoke to the character or the characteristics of God rather than calling God by name. They would call him Jehovah Jireh, Jehovah Rapha, El Shaddai, Elohim. They would call God by the characteristics of God, but would never refer to God directly in a direct relationship as a, as a father to a child or a child to his father. So when Jesus tells them, when you pray, pray like this, Daddy, this fundamentally changes everything for them because we need to understand that religion was a way of life for them and that they relied on the intercessory uh, prayers of the Levites and the priests who would then go before the, the, the throne room of God, the Holy of Holies, and they would use their, their relationship with God to intercede on our behalf. And it was only through religious rites and rituals, sacrifices and burnt offerings that we were able to, to come before God and even then it was through the Levites and the priests. There was an intermediary for us. Some of us, we view God in light of the way we view the father we had in our own lives. You see, maybe you had a dictatorial father that was absent emotionally from your life and that cared more about rule than he did about relationship. Or maybe you didn't have a father, you had an absentee father, and so you were devoid of that intimate relationship with a man in your life that could demonstrate this kind of love. I understand what that feels like. As someone who was adopted at 16 years old, the first 16 years of my life, distorted at best is how I would describe my worldview of what a father was. And so when I, at 16, I was adopted by Bob and Shauna Anderson, I experienced for the first time, and it took a long time for me to be reconditioned, to reprogram the mind is a crazy thing. I had under, understanding of what a dad was or what a father was and, 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 and rules and regulations and being absent and gone, and it was far-fetched for me to believe that you could have an intimate relationship with a father. So at adoption, then when, 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 when my dad, now Bob, would hug me. You see, that was new to me, a dad that would hug you. And when my dad would kiss my cheek, you see, that was new to me. I had never experienced that before. And when he would use terms of endearment or words of affection to call me, that was new to me. It changed my perspective. And now, as a father myself of six, I do what I can to the best of my abilities and with the grace of God to demonstrate to my own children this same kind of compassionate, storge love, a compassionate love to my children, one that demonstrates through my 
physical attention as well as through my words that I love them, that I care for them, and that I'm for them. Not one that is devoid of discipline because I believe that one of the fundamental ways that you demonstrate love for your children is through discipline, but in a way that honors God and respects them. You raise them up in the ways of the Lord. And so I work hard and intentional at making a, a relationship or, or, or paving a way through, through, through God in a, a way that demonstrates a relationship where my children and I can come to one another and it's a, it's a mutual affection. And that's the word that Jesus uses when he says, Abba, this is Papa God. This is crawl up in your great big lap and put your head right in Papa God's arm. Last night at about 9.30, Brianne, my youngest daughter, who's two, uh, was really struggling with the cold. She was having a hard time falling asleep, and she came into my room. Stacy was already asleep, and I was thinking through today's message, and Brianne asked if she could cuddle with me, and so I pulled her up into my arms, and she fell asleep right here on my chest, and at the point which I could no longer take her snoring, I had to take her into her own room and drop her off in her own bed, which my 11-year-old daughter, Taylor, was sleeping in her bed. And as I was walking out, in the darkness of the the night in the room, MJ, my five-year-old daughter, in her sweet little innocent voice says, Daddy, can it be my turn? And I scooped MJ up, verbatim, Daddy, can it be my turn? I picked her up and I said, come on, MJ. And I brought her into my room and there, MJ laid on my chest across my arm and fell asleep. And this morning at 4.30 when I woke up, her little tiny head was still right here on my shoulder, half of her head on the pillow, and my arm was asleep. (laughs) And I think to myself, how can I be comfortable with the rock that she has to sleep on? Like, (laughs) I don't understand how that can be comfortable. If you want to sleep here, if you want comfort. I don't know. Maybe it's like, uh, yeah, I'll stop now. (laughs) But that is a word picture of Papa God, of Abba Father, of Daddy, where you can come to the Father in an intimate relationship. And while we, we can often take for granted this kind of relationship with God, this is brand new. This is the first time that the, the early church or any of them have ever been introduced to God this way. Maybe you're here this morning and this is your first time being introduced to this kind of a God that loves you, that calls you his own, that calls you his child, that you are a co-heir with Christ when you are in him and that Papa God loves you and wants to know you and be uh, in a relationship with you. I'm so glad you're here this morning to hear those words. The second part of what he says, our Father who art in heaven or in heaven. You see, God doesn't just exist as our Abba Father, our Papa God. But Jesus says, while you recognize the affectionate God that we have, you also remember the authority of the sovereignty of God. That our God is to be feared. That our God, the same God that calls us by name and allows us to call him Papa God, is the same God who spoke life into existence. He is the bookends of life, the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. He is the author and the perfecter of life. At the, 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 the sound of his voice, he created the heavens and the earth. He set the stars in place. He gave us the sun to give us direction by day through light, and he gave us the moon at night to continue to guide us. He is the one who from the ground picked up soil and dirt and breathe life through the nostrils of of man in Adam. This is our Papa God. 
powerful God, awesome God that we get to love, but we also must respect and honor. We must not take it our God, our Papa God. And he says, when you pray, remember, this is a Papa God now. This is a God who loves you and meets you where you're at, but he's also to be revered. And he says, may your name be kept holy. That word holy means to be set apart or unique. I want to talk to you ladies for a moment, and maybe more so for you guys. You'll understand this word picture. Around our house growing up, my mom had a, a separate hutch in our kitchen. And inside the hutch that was a glass encased hutch, what did she keep in there? China. Now, did we use China every day to make our mac and cheese? No. No, and regardless of what was happening, my favorite time of year, we are upon our favorite time of year right now, by the way, from about November 20th to January 5th, it is nothing but a feast, a smorgasbord. Thank you, God. (laughs) And on the third month, I will rest. (laughs) But in my home growing up, when when that cabinet opened up, and you heard that... And my mom would take that china, and you heard the sound. Doesn't it somehow make a unique sound when the china hits the table? I had three sisters and two brothers, and we were rough. Regardless of what was going on, there was a rule. Honor God and stay away from the dinner table. Because if a piece of china breaks, you will die. (laughs) Do you know what I'm saying, ladies? I mean, are you catching my... Guys, you understand? There's something, some of the women, yeah, I told him that, he didn't listen. There is something unique uh, when that china goes out that you just, you, 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 you pay special care for it. It's set apart. It's not everyday dishware. You don't make your mac and cheese in there. You're not going to microwave it in the oven. It's passed down usually from generation to generation to generation, and it tells a story. It bears significance, and we celebrate that lineage that we have. And in the same way, when we call upon the name of God, we need to understand that not only is it the name of God, but it is the character of God, who he is, not just at his name, but at who he is, that we set him apart, that we revere him, that we realize that he is holy, that he is unique, that he is special. In other words, we don't come to God haphazardly and just say, hey, what's up, Papa God? Now, there are times where I think that there are, there, there are moments where little prayers are the most powerful prayers, and there are times where I'd say, oh, God, help. Those are maybe some of the most powerful prayers I've ever prayed in my life in certain moments of my life. Oh, God, help. Oh, God, if you don't show up, I'm in trouble. God, help. But I don't think that what Jesus is saying here is that, that we, we don't get to pray. He's, what he's saying is, look, when you pray, remember that he's your dad, but also remember that he's special. He's unique. He's set apart. He's not run-of-the-mill, everyday, little G-God. He's not a little deity. He is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-sovereign God, and we are, are supposed to hold him as high above everything else. And we look at this as religion, but Jesus is going to do something that's going to flip everything upside down. You see, we look at it and say, yeah, I can hold the name of Jesus or the name of God high above every other God. Yeah, I get that. And if the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Yeah, I I get that. Yeah, no, that's cool. But he doesn't stop there. He says, look, our Father in heaven, may your name be kept holy. May your kingdom come soon. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What Jesus is doing is he's saying, when you call on the name of God, when you set it apart as holy, what you are saying when you said, may your kingdom come this side of heaven, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, is you recognizing at the name of God that his will is better than your way. 
that his desire is better than your preferences. That his purpose is better than any plan that you can contrive. He's saying, Papa God, you're holy, you're awesome. You're, 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 you're to be held in the highest of honor and esteem and because of who you are, not just as my God, but in my life. Let's not miss that. He's not saying in religion. He's saying in life. When he says, may your king, your God, may your kingdom come, you could take the D-O-M off of king and you just put right there, king, that God is our king and it is his kingdom that is established here on earth through our choices, how we live our lives. May your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This would be a brilliant place to do a spiritual practice right now. A very practical practice, if you will. You could circle the word earth. And then we're going to do something that I want you to think about, okay? Let me explain what Jesus is saying when he says, May your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What he's saying now is earth, everything this side of heaven, is everything that makes up who we are. Let me put it to you this way. When you look at it very practically, you say, God, I want your will over my way. I want your purpose over my plan. I want your desire over my preferences. So when you say, God, your will be done on earth, what you're really praying in a very, very practical sense is, and I want you to say it like this, God, I want your will to be done in my marriage. You see, my, my preference may be that I don't really like this person right now. I'm not really enjoying trying to get along with them. We're not on the same page. They messed up and, and I don't really feel like I want to be with them anymore. But, but God, here's the deal. I want your will over my ways. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Not real enough for you? Well, how about this one? How about this? Lord, I want your will in my finances. My finances. You see, you can be my God when it comes to religion, when it comes to church, when it comes to celebrating Christmas and Easter. You can be my God, but, but what Jesus is saying is, look, your kingdom come on earth. That is everything, this side of heaven, that makes up who we are. And he's saying, is God truly the God of your finances? Are you really praying this prayer? God, I want your desire for my finances over my best idea. I want your will over my way. I want your purpose over my best laid plans. If so, how does that look practically with your finances? It should not only just change how you think about finances, but what you do with what God has given you. Or how about your job? I mean, let's be honest, your employer doesn't really treat you very fair. Your boss isn't as kind to you as you'd like him to be. They're asking you to do more than what you signed up for, and it's not fair. But how you think about it has everything to do with you and not what they're asking of you. So Lord, I want your will to be done in my job. Your word says that whenever I work, if I work as unto you, it's an act of worship. And so Lord, worship means worthyship and you're worthy. And in this moment, even though I don't like it, God, I am choosing your will over my ways. I'm choosing your purpose over my best laid plans. God, may your will be done on earth, this side of heaven, in my life, in every area of my life. This is brand new to his audience. A lot of you have heard really good sermons, better sermons than the one I'm going to give today about what this means practically, pragmatically in your lives. 
But the audience that Jesus is speaking to has never heard anything like this before. That God cares for them. That God wants to be involved in the day-to-day interactions, the daily decisions. That he is a Papa God who meets us where we're at and takes us where he wants us to go. And he takes us where he wants us to go by us surrendering our desire for his will. And Jesus says, when you pray, it's not a recipe. There's not a bunch of, uh, of ingredients that you need to throw into it. What you're praying is, God, all that I have in this moment, all that I am from the inner recesses of my mind to the actions in my life, I give it to you. This is about a relationship, not about religion. Then he says in verse 11, give us today the food that we need. Give us today our daily bread. This one came to life this week as I was studying this and talking with a group of several other pastors uh, on our staff this week. We met on Thursday to kind of go over the message. I wanted to share some ideas and thoughts with them. And we've all heard this before, and I've even preached this before, but something came to This is one of those passing statements as well. Give us today our daily bread. What does it really mean? Well, when you, when you look at it and you want to try to associate some value to it on Scripture before, it's easy for us to go Moses and manna, right? Where God says, I'm going to care for your days, your, your daily provision, your daily needs. I'm going to give you manna from heaven. It's uh, going to be a wafer that tastes like honey. And each day I want you to gather just what you need for that day. I don't want you to get extra because it'll rot and, and grow moldy and old. And on the sixth day, I want you to go ahead and get some extra because on the seventh day you're going to rest and I want to provide for you. It's provision. We look at it as a provision passage. But as I studied and as I talked, the Lord revealed to me something very unique, something very different. Bread, as it is today, was one of the most common table elements in society. I mean, how often do we even really consider? Sometimes we'll consider where we go for dinner based on the kind of bread they have before dinner starts. I mean, at least for me, that's an important piece of the equation. Let's be honest. And you go, before you go, you resolve in your mind that you're going to do really well. You're going to stay away from carbs. I don't care how much you resolve in your mind that you're going to stay away from carbs. When you go to Red Lobster (laughs) and they bring out those steamy cheese biscuits and put a chunk of butter in front of it, somehow the Lord reveals something different to you. And you're breaking a lot of bread. Well, the Lord says, give us this day or daily. I'm going to break the bread. But here's the deal. Here's what it is. We can give or take the bread. We can sweep right over the bread. In fact, the bread that we don't eat at the table gets thrown out. It's good for nothing anymore. Here is what Jesus is saying in this prayer. Give us today our daily bread. It was a common table element. It wasn't really worth a whole lot of thought. What it says to us is that Jesus is in the small details. That there's nothing too great and nothing too insignificant for God. God wants to be involved in the small things, in the minor, in the minor things, in the things that we consider minute, that we don't want to trouble God with. God, I'll come to you when the big things happen. When it's at the point in my life where it's, oh God, help. If you don't show up, I'm in big trouble. Hey, I'll save those prayers for you, God. What Jesus is saying is, no, no, no. God cares about the smallest little things. Give us today our daily bread. The things that are common to us, Jesus says that we are called to lay before the throne room of God. So Lord, in my schedule today, I pray that I honor you. In my conversations, with the words that I use, may my words be a reflection of you. As I go to school and as I study for these tests and apply my knowledge to these tests, God, I pray that you'll save me so I don't get grounded forever. 
Those are the big prayers, but God cares about the little things all in between. When he says, give us today our daily bread, he is saying the thing that you take for granted that you don't really give much thought to, but is sustaining, life-giving, give it all to God. Give us today our daily bread. And in verse 12, Jesus says, when you pray, ask God to forgive our sins. And then when you pray, ask that you would be able to forgive others who sinned against you. There's two types of law that Jesus is speaking to right now. And again, it's important that we understand his audience. He doesn't give a number of how many people are there, but there's over 18 regions represented, including the lawyers, the religious elite that care about these things, and the Gentiles who have no real understanding of these things, and everything in between. So Jesus now speaks to where they're at with those who care about the law. And he says, let me talk to you a little bit about this law. He's gonna address what is known as judicial law, and he's gonna address what is known as relational law. Judicial law is where we have, when we have wronged someone or we have broken a law, that we stand before a judge and we are convicted and condemned for what we have done that was against the law. But it is the same law where Jesus, through God, uh, God through Jesus, steps in and says, look, 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 look. You've sinned, you've fallen short. The wages of that breaking the law is death. But through Jesus, he stands and he says, look, I don't, I don't want to press charges. I no longer want to hold them accountable. Hold me liable. Hold me responsible for the, for the judgment that is given to those who break the law. This is a judicial law, and Jesus steps in, and through his blood on Calvary and through his resurrection from the tomb, leaving it empty, he says, I will pay for this broken law. But then he doesn't leave it there. He says, ask Jesus, ask God in this moment to forgive you of your sins, the judicial law, those things that you've broken, whether sins of commission that you committed knowingly or sins of omission that you committed unknowingly or unaware of. You go before God and say, Papa God, I messed up and I'm sorry. I know I deserve punishment. I know I deserve ramifications for my actions, and I'm sorry, I lay it before you. He doesn't just leave it there, though. He takes it to a relational law as well. And he talks about how he restores us onto a relationship for himself through Jesus that we are called to restore others in relationship with us. It's not an option. That's gonna be really hard for somebody to hear this morning. That restoring people into a relationship with them. That doesn't mean that we neglect boundaries. There are people in my life that have done horrible things to me or to my family that I can forgive, but it is very important that I have boundaries in place so that that doesn't happen again. Boundaries that honor God and protect my family. So what I'm not saying is, I'm not saying that you forgive and forget, you sweep it under the rug and move on. Because that's not what the word of God says. But to carry someone's sins and hold it against them, to carry somebody's wrongs against them and hold against them. We don't have the right to do that because God doesn't do that to us when he, through his son Jesus, takes care of the judicial law so that we can exercise a relational law through forgiveness. I don't remember what scholar it was, but the language was, who am I that I could hold on to the grudges of someone else when I know the weight of my sins before God. In other words, if God would forgive me through the act of Jesus in all of my brokenness, knowing how messed up that really is, how can I then hold somebody else, 
hold grudges against somebody else. God, forgive us and help us to forgive others. Do you see that? As we've forgiven those against us. In verse 13, he says, and don't let us yield to temptation, but rescue us from the evil one. Don't let us give in to temptation. James says, look, when you're tempted, don't blame God. Because what do darkness and light have in common? God has nothing to do with temptation. He has nothing to do with sin or darkness. The word of God tells us that there's no sin that is common to man that has overcome us because of Jesus. So we have the ability then to call out, and I talked about this last week, the darkness, the sin, the brokenness, the temptation is there. It is real. It is active. Spiritual warfare is around us at all times. And the enemy comes like a thief to steal, kill, and destroy. He prowls around, the Bible says, like a lion waiting to pounce on his prey. But Jesus stands at the gate like a shepherd for his flock. And he stands guard over the gate, making sure by day and even at night, laying prostrate before the, the, the fence so that no predator can come in and attack us. He stands at the ready to defend our lives. So it's up to us then to allow Jesus to defend us against temptation. You don't have to go and live in darkness. You don't have to go and live in death. You don't have to choose uh, to, to, to lose. You could choose victory. And it's as simple as saying, God, I can't do this on my own. That's what Jesus is saying. When you go to Papa God, say, our Father in heaven, because of your sovereignty, I need you to deliver me. I need you to help me. I need you to guide me. I need you to lead me. I need you to direct me. And it may not be day-to-day. Church, it may be moment by moment that we need God to direct us in that very moment. That's why I believe the Apostle Paul says, when you pray, pray without stopping, pray without ceasing. It isn't about location, it's about motivation. It isn't about a bunch of rules and regulations, a recipe full of ingredients that says that you have to stand this way, or kneel this way, or sit this way, or recite this prayer, or say that prayer this many times. And church, I know that if it sounds like, it sounds vaguely familiar, like I'm attacking another religion or another denomination, and I am not. I am not. That is not my intention. I am not here to defame any other religion or to defame any other denomination and say that they somehow have it all wrong because I can't judge the the inner recesses of their heart. You see, the world looks at the outward appearance, but Jesus, God looks through Jesus, looks at the inside of our hearts and judges. That's why it's not about location. It's about motivation. But what I want to tell you is that I am afraid when Jesus says, I tell you the truth, and he says it even in these passages, I tell you the truth. Whenever Jesus says, I tell you the truth, the reason that he says, I tell you the truth, is because there has been a lie that has been believed around that idea, whatever that idea is. When Jesus says here, I tell you the truth, what he's saying is that some of you, like the Pharisees, have believed that through a a bunch of religious rituals, praying a certain prayer a certain many of times, number of times at a certain place at a certain day, is going to be enough. And the problem is that that, that, that's a self-based salvation. It's what you have to offer. And then there are others who are Gentiles who you don't really know what you believe, but you believe in the spirituality and stuff. You just say it enough, God will eventually tap out. Or you, you can somehow manipulate the spiritual forces of this world. And that's not what this is about. Jesus says, I tell you the truth. It's not 
about ingredients in a recipe that make it what it is. It is about stepping into the kitchen with the master chef and learning from the master chef as it's being created. Here's the big so what today. The power of this one prayer takes us from a recipe for religion and into a relationship with God. The power of this one prayer. It isn't even about reciting this prayer, church. I, I have to say that again. It isn't even about reciting this specific prayer. You see, what Jesus does in this and through this specific prayer is draws all attention to a relationship with God the Father. It's about a relationship. It's about a relationship. It's about a relationship. If you're here this morning and you've lived a life of religion, or you thought that you could pray the right prayer or do the right number of things the right amount of times, but you've been missing this relationship. When I describe that word picture of a Papa God, where you could crawl up into your daddy's lap and God embraces you and says, you are my child with whom I love. I care about you. I care about you right where you're at. I know you intimately, I know you personally, I, I, I know everything about you, I know when you rise and when you fall, I know when you breathe, I, I, I'm the reason that you have the breath that you breathe in. If you don't know a personal God like that, but you, you've been consumed with religion, this morning can be a game changer for you. It can change everything when you step out of religion and into that relationship and say, God, I've tried to do it the ways of the world, I've done it based on religion. And I'm not, I'm not saying this to condemn anyone. You see, a lot of us, for us, church and faith is based, is based on what those who have gone before us have done and taught us. But when we come into a relationship with Jesus, it changes everything. And so that's why I want to pray as we close. Papa God, thank you. I love you. Papa God, Not only do you love me where I'm at, but I recognize the sovereignty of a God who stands in heaven. You're sovereign above all things. And your name is holy. Your name is set apart. You are unique. You are different than anything else or anyone else. And so I declare today, holy is your name. Hallowed is your name. Set apart. And my prayer today is that your kingdom would come that your will would be done here on earth in my life, that your kingdom would come, that your will would be greater than my ways, that your purpose would be better than my, uh, the best derived plans. Father, I surrender my life to you, my all to you, my earth to you, this side of heaven. And Lord, I do pray that you'll give us today our daily bread. Father, for me, that means that in the smallest things that I don't really think that you care much about, I know now that you do care. You are in the details. You are a Papa God who knows all things and you care about those details. And so Lord, I surrender this morning those details to you. And Father, I pray that you forgive me for any sins known or unknown that I've committed against you or against anyone else. Lord, I ask your forgiveness please don't count them against me anymore. Let me walk in the truth of your word that says, as far as the east is from the west, that's how far you've removed our transgressions from us, that they are gone, buried in the sea of forgiveness. Holy Spirit, give me the strength that I need to forgive others as I have been forgiven. And Lord, please, 
please make a way out in the face of temptation. And give me the strength that I need to take that way out. Because you did it. For 40 days, you did it. You fasted and you prayed and you communed with God. And when you were tempted in every way, you stood firm in who God is through you. And because of that, you make a way for us to stand against temptation. And so I pray that you deliver us from evil. Deliver us from the evil one. And help us today to live out the life that you've called us to live through the power of this one prayer. Amen.